0: and their American dream. Thank you to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, and Spiritless. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. Before we get to the podcast, I want to share the story of three young women who are carving their own path in the beverage industry— They started a company called Spiritless. Their first product is called Kentucky 74, and it's a non-alcoholic bourbon. You can use it as the base for so many delicious mocktails or drink it by itself on the rocks. What I like to do is go halvesies, meaning you mix it with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail. I put a little honey, cinnamon, and an orange slice, and it is truly delicious. If you'd like to enjoy an evening cocktail with no guilt... You can use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For the podcast, where we meet the world's most fascinating and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is CEO of Heifer International, Pierre Ferrari.
1: In ultimately, if you're going to build wealth or you're going to build income, you have to sell something to somebody.
0: Pierre Ferrari grew up in the Congo and went to college in England. His life has taken him all over the world. He spent most of it, 40 years in fact, in business, and he was very successful. And now, since 2010, he has been the CEO of the world humanitarian organization Heifer International. He spent most of his years at Coca-Cola USA before deciding in 1995 to focus his energy on social issues. Ferrari is a former chair and board member of Ben & Jerry's Homemade Ice Cream, and a former board member of the Small Enterprise Assistance Fund. He received a master's degree in economics from the University of Cambridge and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Please enjoy my interview with Pierre Ferrari. Well, first of all, let me just say I'm so pleased that you agreed to be on to dine for the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. First, let's begin at the beginning, and that is, I'd love to know... Where your favorite restaurant is in the world, with all of your varied experiences and living all these different places, where would you take me as your favorite spot?
1: In the world, my goodness, or in Little uh, you know, Rock. Some, of, the, some <laughs> of my favorite restaurants have closed. You know, I was I was in the wine business for a while, and I was uh, in the fine wine business. You know, with uh, uh, the, the importation and distribution company that I led back in the eighties. And so my suppliers took me to the best restaurants in France, in Italy, in Spain. I don't remember them all. There were so many. I told my wife, I said, you know, I don't want to see another three-star restaurant. I've seen enough of them. (laughs) But uh, uh, I think my favorite restaurant uh, right now, which is still open in New York City, is Le Bernadette, that fish restaurant. I love Mm -hmm. fish. I think they do it incredibly well with incredible sensitivity and, and taste. And nothing is imperfect. Everything's always perfect. And it's not, it's not particularly complicated. You know, it's not an elaborate menu or anything. It's just fantastic with all it the natural It is simple, flavors.
0: fresh fish done perfectly. Yeah, perfectly. Someone who is at the top of their game talking about the top chef. The, and they've been at the top of the game for a
1: long time. Yes. As, as a supplier, I remember, you know, providing them with high-quality white burgundies back in the mid-'80s. You know, they're still doing it great.
0: My first apartment in New York City when I moved to New York in 2006 was directly across from Le Bernardin, right there no. on 51st. Wow. Yes, And, wow. so, and I wow. didn't eat there for a year because at the time I couldn't afford to, but Ugh. I would watch the people come and go, and then I finally ate there, and it was spectacular. It is really uh, one of the best restaurants truly in the world. Where do you live currently?
1: I live currently in a, in a community called Serenby, which is south of Atlanta. Uh, It's a, what we call a biophilic community. It's a a development, but uh, we have a a set of rules on how the development can occur. So 30% of the land can be developed, but 70% is maintained as forest. Mm. We have an organic farm, you know, 30-acre organic farm, community-supported agriculture, a whole bunch of practices that allow us to live very close to the land, very close to not only food but also nature. It's a it's a very idyllic community here. So Serenbe is the name of it. Uh, we have four restaurants. I'd say one of them is good; the others are a little bit sketchy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I did not know. I was I'm surprised to learn that you live near Atlanta. I I thought maybe New York or perhaps Little Rock, where Heifer International is based. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to hear, first of all, what drew you to Heifer International of all, after 40 years of experience in all sorts of different companies, including Coca-Cola, um, with a degree from Harvard, there is really, you could have done anything and you chose to yeah. work for Heifer. Why?
1: You know, I was, I was leading a, um, what my wife used to call a dim sum life, you know, the idea of just sampling all around. And I thought that uh, I had a small venture capital firm. I had a small uh, marketing consulting firm in sports marketing. I did a whole bunch of little things. And uh, at some point, having done that for about, uh, oh, I think 10, 15 years, I was feeling the urge to do one thing well, You know, mm. especially coming to the end of my career. I mean, I was 55, 60 at the time. And a friend of mine at a meeting we had – uh, lo- a local Oglethorpe University. I'll never forget that meeting. She said, you know, a job has just opened up with Heifer International. and said, so, you are, she was an executive search firm, you are the man to do this. Hmm. She said, you need to apply for that job because they would benefit from somebody like you.
0: And what do you think it was about you that she said that? Why do you think she, she said, said that?
1: Because I had some private, I had some, obviously, a lot of uh, private private sector, you know, for-profit experience. And I also had some experience in nonprofit work, both uh, I had worked for CARE. That's how I got to know her. And she said they need that blend, and you bring that blend, and also you bring a set of values and, and perspectives and ethics that they would they really would enjoy. And I think you know you, you'd feel very comfortable there. And there were some other technical things that like she said. Also, unlike a lot of nonprofits uh, in the development sector, they don't depend on institutional funding. They have a substantial amount of unrestricted funds which would allow you to be a strategic maker as opposed to a strategy taker. And you are a strategy maker, and they need somebody like you to come and utilize this incredible resource called a substantial amount of unrestricted funds to go do what needs to be done. So that intrigued me, and so I applied. Actually, my wife and I were actually traveling in France at the time, so I interviewed from Marseille, from (laughs) all sorts of different places, which, by the way, reminded me of this incredible restaurant with the bouillabaisse was just <laughs> astonishing.
0: <laughs> we can do this the entire time from this conversation. We can always deviate into food. You, you could know, always that's say, kind yeah, of my this, default. This, this was
1: a place to die for, you know, die for. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was great.
0: So I understand why they wanted you, but why did you want Heifer? Well, I had, I had left, left
1: Coke at 95, and I had launched myself with some partners in a venture fund we were working on deploying capital, private equity, venture capital into distressed communities. Okay, So the, the purpose of it all was to actually develop jobs and that would actually create employment and wealth for for disadvantaged folks in distressed communities. So I'd been doing a lot of this kind of work. At a small scale, I had a $5 million fund, not very much money. And so my, I'd been bitten by this idea that you can do a lot of good work if you focus and you you re, you know you really focus your resources and your work. And uh, so I, my appetite was up. And I just thought that working for uh, an, an, an organization like Heifer would actually provide me with a platform to do some, some really powerful work, which we've gotten to now. I think we've gotten to 10 years after my tenure there. Uh, we've organized ourselves and deploy, uh, deploying our resources in ways that are really quite dramatic and impactful.
0: So Pierre, I'd love for you to share and explain what the mission of heifer is to someone who had never heard of heifer. How, how do you explain it in less than five sentences?
1: Yeah, so we work with the poorest of the poor and smallholder farmers, and mostly in the Southern Hemisphere. We do have a project in, in the U.S. So the smallholder farmers or the subsistence farmers are farming For many cases, simply to survive. They're not farmers because they want to be farmers. So what we try to do is convert these smallholder farmers, these subsistence farmers, who are faced with unbelievable challenges, including just deep generational poverty, and organize them to look at farming as a business, something that can help them escape poverty permanently. And we have a principle. We call it living income. So we say, okay, if you're gonna take people out of poverty, you're gonna take them somewhere where there's a sustainable level of income and revenue and wealth creation that allows them to be self-sustaining, self-reliant, to be independent and, and live lives of dignity. That's what we do. So we work with farmers who are not really farmers, but train them in all sorts of things, whether it be livestock management, horticulture, input management, and get them engaged in the marketplace. Because that, ultimately, if you're going to build wealth, or you're going to build income, you have to sell something to somebody.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. All
1: right? And that's not so simple.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, It's okay, what is the market for tomatoes? What is the market right. for chicken? What is the market for whatever it is the farmer is going to produce? Increasing production alone does not solve the problem.
0: We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Now back to our conversation. So many, many years ago, um, actually before you took over in 2010, I had the privilege of going to Honduras with Heifer. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, I was a reporter in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I traveled to Honduras with um, some folks from Heifer and um, told the story of Heifer through a series of stories, video stories that aired on the local ABC affiliate in Arkansas. And what struck me so much about the experience of Heifer is that not only is it the gifting of livestock, right? That, as you said, you have to have something to sell. It's once a family receives a goat, a chicken, a heifer, that they are then have the privilege of passing it on to another family. Ah, right, right, right. It's the idea of giving and gifting. There's something very powerful of having enough to give someone else, isn't there?
1: Right, there is. There's something very powerful. And you know, the, the, the real work of Heifer, since you've been in the field, is actually not so much the technical work that we do in terms of training them how to take care of the chickens or the goats or the, the cow, or whatever it is. It's actually a psychosocial phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Because we work with communities, and in Honduras you probably met some of these communities, when we actually get them or we actually reach them, they are mired in a level of depression and generational depression that is really a huge barrier for them to actually move on. Mm -hmm. So the work that we do very early on with communities is actually to move people from a sense of hopelessness Mm -hmm. to hopefulness. Mm -hmm. That's the work that we actually do. Mm -hmm. So I keep telling my folks, you know, yeah, we're technically really proficient. We've got vets and we've got all, all the culturalists. We've got market specialists and everything else. But the work that we do that is really fundamental is transformational in the people's heads and minds.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So really, in a way, it's you don't want to oversimplify it, but it is a mental game. It this, is. Right? In the sense it that is. once they realize that if they could just take this goat you could do so much with the goat and not only sell the milk from the goat, but not only um, be able to uh, use um, the droppings from the goat to fertilize your plants in your garden. You could sell the fertilizer. There's like a million different ways that one goat could make this amazing impact, not only on one family, but then on an entire community.
1: But, you know, and behind all that, behind all of those activities that can be successful, You've got to have a, a family or a person or a community, which is whether it's passing on the gift cards, and is committed to doing it.
0: Yes, yes. They're,
1: they're, they get up Truly in the morning and say, I am, yeah, they're buying in at a psychological level. I really think that most the incredible quality of work that we do is that. Mm. It really is that. Mm. And we've got some research going on. We've got, you know, a bunch of sociologists and psychologists trying to put together a, a theoretical framework around it. It's difficult to convey to people here what poverty is like over there. There's, yes. you know, there's, there's the bad water, you know, terrible weather, no, no lights, no electricity. No, I just the conditions are just unbelievably negative. Yes. So no wonder they don't have much interest except to stay alive.
0: Right. Oh, and, and have no schooling. Right. And no, trend, no schooling, I no hope, no sense of a chance of maybe moving up a station in life in any right. way, shape, or form. Right. right. What do you think, when you look back at your career, you said that you worked in the wine business, Coca Cola. What do you think it is about your background that uniquely prepared you for this position?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I've, I've thought a little bit about that. So, you know, I went back to my childhood. You know, I'm just. Uh, to talk to my therapist or something, but no. Uh, you know, is that my my grandmother, who was a very pious Catholic, she was very good friends with a local bishop. This is in the middle of Africa, and I mean, in the you middle grew up in of the Africa, Congo, right? In the Congo, yes. right. So this is this is a small mining community, a mining town. She decided with the bishop that they were going to build a vegetable wholesale and retail business, mm. and the vegetables and fruits that were there going to be sold. Were going to be grown by the villages where the Catholic Church had actually built schools, mm. missionary schools. And so the, the 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 concept that people could escape poverty with their own hard work. It's a very, ah. very heifer-like model because they the, the church actually brought in some experts, I guess, and showed the villagers how to grow vegetables for their own consumption as well as for sale. And I remember going with my grandmother on an all Ford truck going to pick up the vegetables and the fruits. And then she she built a very successful business. And, of course, the benefits to the, to the villagers was that they only earned money. They also grew high-quality foods for themselves. Oh,
0: fascinating. So it was like the concept of heifer, in a way, was imprinted yeah. in your brain at a very young age.
1: Absolutely. And this idea that they could do it for themselves.
0: Right. The, the, their own agency could change the station in life. When you took over... Heifer in 2010 and you look back now in 2021, what are you most proud of that you've accomplished in that time?
1: I think when I started, Heifer was a collection of 900 different small projects all over the world, 47 countries, that kind of thing. Today, we're down to 21 countries and about 20 odd, what we call signature projects. Mm -hmm. His focus and his concentration of effort is allowing us to be substantially more impactful mm. and to create opportunities for genuine wealth creation among the population we work and serve. And the, 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 I think the thing I'm most proud of is that the team at Heifer, the team that I, I inherited back in, 19, in 2010 mm. and the team I have today is basically the same. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were able to transform themselves as well mm. there's one thing you can do you know and say, okay the old baggage let's get rid of everybody and let's just start from scratch well no these people are incredibly the most important thing about them all is their commitment to other people this value of being really compassionate and loving of people who are in dire straits is the greatest asset we have is we've protected that
0: You know, people talk about a corporate culture or values-driven business, but, you know, my experience with Heifer many years ago with Ray White and Jennifer Pierce was that Heifer International... Uh, lives and breathes values. It's almost almost trite to use the word values because it's such a part of the DNA (laughs) of what Heifer International is, is, right? You're really trying so hard to be a force for good in the world. As you look back and as you look forward, you say that one of the things that has happened in the past 11 years is really strengthening and focusing your efforts on fewer communities, but ones that you really can make an impact. When you look forward, what what needs to be done? What, right. what, what's ahead?
1: First of all, we have to implement what we've put in the field, right? And now I think we've got the model that works. One of the things that, I, that I'm critical of the development sector, if you like, is that too many projects are short-term projects, three, five years and the idea that you can turn around a multi-generational situation like the kind of poverty we encounter in three to five years is just absurd. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely absurd. So what we've done, and I think what we've launched now, is on a pathway to recognize that to really make a change in the community, whether it be in Huehuetenango in Guatemala, in Bokhtara in Nepal, or somewhere in Cambodia or, or Nigeria, is that it's gonna take a long time. So this idea of patience and saying, okay, now we've got a plan on how this is gonna develop and to get these communities to a place of living income and a dignified life is gonna take 10, 15 years. It's gonna take that kind of time. So let's stay there, let's keep working, let's make some you know, progress on all fronts. For example, we've got, to, right now because of COVID, we've been very focused on infrastructure. There's very little, you know, there's, the, the interaction between humans has been limited and is dangerous for our staff and, and, and for the community. But building a storage, you know, storage facilities or uh, making trucks available, all sorts of things that allow for wealth creation and wealth capture of the agricultural product is very possible. And we're doing a lot of that. So the, the view that I have over the next 10 years, and I've written a document on what we think 2030 is going to look like. Is to be patient mm. and to keep working. I call it the accretion strategy, like an oyster. You know, you just keep layering and layering and layering and layering, and at the end of the day, you end up with some pearls.
0: What have you personally learned since starting at Heifer as yeah. a leader and as a person? Well, as first of
1: all, patience. I, you know, I, it came from a background and a, a culture that was very impatient about results. Today, that's mm. the Coca-Cola kind of tragedy, or or not for Coca-Cola per se, but the private sector is that. Sure. The quality results is what drives everything. So that's one thing: is that uh, through through you know spending time in the field and everything else, I've learned to be patient because you're talking about change in people. That is, a, a a lot of people work on on what I call Homo economicus, you know. That's just, and I think we we have to work on Homo sapiens. Mm. We work with a whole person. So that's one thing I had to learn and uh, and and learn to be patient. The other is uh, is this idea that. Uh, Compassion, sympathy, loving, kindness is really what drives the world. Mm -hmm. It's not money, it's not all these other aspects. And so that changed me because I'm, you know, when you're at Heifer, and you noted that earlier, you're just marinating in a culture that is absolutely and constantly talking about other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we spend a little time in terms of compensation and what people are getting paid. But it's not what drives us. You know, it's not stock options. It's not the price of the stock. It's how well are we doing to change people's lives for the better? Mm. And that changes you. I mean, it changes everything, in, in not just at work, but in, you know, in my relationship with my children, with my wife, my dog. All of that changes because you're seeing a perspective of compassion, basically. Loving kindness and compassion.
0: Well that's a huge shift. That's a great answer and it's a huge shift. And I can shift and just from the beginning of our conversation, when you were talking about your previous job where you were talking about raising capital and, and as you said, quarterly reports, I mean, talk about a difference in almost every aspect of your life and career.
1: Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I would recommend a lot of people who, who want to go into either nonprofit work or for-profit work do both, mm-hmm. you know, because I did, I did bring a lot of discipline and approaches to heifer that they needed, you know, because you can be, you can, yes, you could be married again in loving and kindness and, and values and ethics, but at the same time, you've got to get stuff done.
0: Yes, you got to have strategy, you got to have money. you got to figure out how you've to fundraise, money. right?
1: You have to fundraise, you yeah. have to deploy it right, you've got to have systems. You know, so that that's the biggest change, I think, in myself that I've seen. I, I know I go to meetings now, industry meetings, and we do have values that are a bit different than other people. There's no question. Uh, and I think in the sector, the, the nonprofit sector is filled with people who are really committed to other people, so... It's an incredible place to be.
0: You know, when I talk about Heifer International and my experience with them, I always tell people that one of the greatest things you can do is to start very small and to buy one chicken for a family. Go on the website and you're able Uh, to do that. And first of all, to learn about it, to understand the concept and to realize the impact of literally... One chicken, one goat, bees. Right? Bees are huge. People don't talk. We don't talk about bees, bees enough. Yeah, bees you are huge. Interesting that in
1: Honduras. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, just that simple act and the impact it can have, not only on a family, but the the heifer value of then that family then uses whatever the money they have to gift another goat to another family and it's a ripple effect that you're you're not just buying one chicken you're not just buying one yeah. goat for a family uh,
1: the multiplier effect that's right yes and and it's true you know i think the interesting thing about the multiplier effect is actually an expression of the values we've been talking about about compassion love, and loving kindness because fundamentally passing on the gift is not something we you know that just spontaneously happens it's because we work with the communities to uh, to show them that success, their success, their personal success, and their community success will come with sharing and participating, and based on collective action. The collective is so much more powerful than the individual action, which of course is is a big is a big debate right now in this country, right? Mm-hmm. Collective action versus individualism. So we we are very much based on the idea that collective action, that the community can come together and do so much more together. Than individually, even though the farmer has to take care of the chicken or the goat or whatever it is, if they if they combine, for example, behind a co-op, for example, that would be an, where the co-op can now become an instrument with which to sell their surplus, and and it's much much more effective and much more efficient and much more revenue generating than trying to do it by yourself.
0: Well, in the idea that real success. Isn't about necessarily financial freedom as much no. as it is being able to give something to someone else to help. Yeah.
1: Compassion. Well, is that, is that? And, you know, I think, well, the, the reality also, I remember I was in, in Guatemala and we were visiting coffee lands way up in the mountains where high quality coffee has been grown. And uh, we were meeting with a group of women and this uh, unusually tall Guatemalan, well, local indigenous uh, group came stood up. And she says, You know, we, we are a community. And there was a group of 30 women around us. We work together and we support one another and we, you know, passing on the gift. We do all of that. He said, But I, my husband and I, we only earn about $2,000 a year. And I need or we need $7,000. And then she actually recited exactly what her budget items were going to be she needed for education, for high quality food, for shelter, for clothing. It was an incredible experience for me to see that this woman not only believed in community and participation and all the things we've talked about, but she also needed money. Mm. She also needed money to be able to live successfully in a dignified way. That episode actually guided us to say, okay, living income, this idea of a basic living income so that people can live in dignity is a fundamental North Star for us now. Mm. Most communities we work with, not all, not most, all communities we work with simply don't have enough money.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. It's a
1: serious problem.
0: It is not just about. A little bit of money, or getting enough money—it's no. a living wage. It's a living, a living income. Wage. It, there's a difference, and there's a. It's, and yes. we've got
1: a whole pro- yeah, we've got a whole protocol and analytical framework to say, okay, if you're in Malawi, this is what a living income looks like, and if you're in where we're tanango, where we were, that's what a living income looks like. Mm-hmm. And you know, we 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 try to be very disciplined about it, so that when we put together projects, we say, okay, this is our goal. It might take ten years, might take ten years, might take fifteen years. But this is our goal. We, these communities need to escape poverty permanently.
0: If someone's listening and they want to learn more about Heifer, what would you advise them to do?
1: Oh, I think we've got a superb website. I don't know if you've been on it lately, but I think that's one, that would be one, one place to go. And if you're interested in the economic work that we do, if you're interested in the psychological work that we do, all of that is available on the website. So that would be in one place. And of course, uh, we have, do you, do you still live in Little Rock at all? Or,
0: no, I live, you know, I live outside of Chicago now.
1: Chicago now. But if you go back to Little Rock at all ever to visit family or something like that, uh, you should go to our ranch in Perryville. It's a 1,200-acre ranch, and there we practice uh, all of the things that we do all over the world. We have regenerative farming. We do cattle. We do chickens. We grow vegetables, etc., etc. We have a whole system there to show best agricultural practices. And we work with uh, distressed communities from, from both Arkansas and neighboring states. So that would be one place to go and have a look and say, wow, this is what they do. This is what smallholder farming looks like and, and how successful it successfully can be.
0: Pierre, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating hearing about your journey from the Congo with your grandmother, uh, selling vegetables all the way to your experience today, leading this incredible organization into the future and beyond. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you, Kate. I really appreciate the time. It's been great.
0: Thanks for listening to To Dine For the Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at to Dine for with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the Podcast, American National and Spiritless. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired.